Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Well, good morning, Connect. Good to be with you. We're in week nine of the Rooted series, and tonight, this morning, not tonight, this morning we're talking about um, how do we share our faith, why should we share our faith, and uh, before we do that, let me just pray one more time, and then we'll jump into our message. God, we pause one more time to pray and ask the God that you'd speak to us through the Bible today, that my words would be your words, guided by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not long after Marcy and myself moved to Highlands Ranch, a long time ago, 1994, 30 years ago, um, a friend of mine called me and he says, hey, the new Pizza Hut restaurant is opening and it was back 30 years ago, it was unique, it was delivery only, okay? And he says, hey, they're testing their drive times, their computers, uh, and so you can call them up and you can get a free pizza. Well, the friend who called me was a pastor, so I didn't entirely trust what he was saying. Um, I thought, well, maybe he was calling to play a joke on me, to think I would embarrass myself, call pizza up, ask for a free pizza, and they think, free pizza? What are you talking about? So I thought, well, I, I weighed the risk, right? A little embarrassment against free pizza. So I made the call. Um, free pizza shows up 20 minutes later to our door, no charge. I was like, hey, this is pretty good. What did I do? What would you do? I called my neighbor. I said, hey, Pizza Hut's giving away free pizza. They got free pizza. You know what they did? They called their neighbor, just like you would expect. Why? There was an endless supply of free pizza. It was too good not to tell other people about, right? Well, I hope you know that we have something as Christians that is too good to not tell other people about. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we walk regularly connected to Christ, when we fully remember and understand everything that we have in Jesus, it's just too good to keep to ourselves. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible you want to turn there, we'll get there in just a moment. In Acts chapter 3, um, verse 6, there's a man that comes and, and he wants something from Peter and John. And you might know the, the verse and the passage, but in Acts chapter 3, it's going to set up where we're going to be in chapter 4, He says, silver and gold I don't have, but one thing I do, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And this crippled man, who's been crippled his whole life, is is healed. Well, of course, this healing uh, gets a lot of attention from both sides, the people who are amazed at the, the miracle of it all, and then, of course, the religious leaders who aren't very happy that they thought they had got rid of Jesus and his followers by killing Jesus, but now... The followers of Jesus are now, they're doing the miracles that this guy Jesus was doing. Okay, so we're going to pick up what happens now in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking. So they're still preaching to the people in the middle of their preaching. And they were greatly distressed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So, verse 3, they seized Peter and John. This means they arrested them. 
This is the persecution that Jesus had promised, and it's happening to them. They, they arrested them or per, uh, took charge of them, but because it was evening, they put them uh, in jail until the next day. Verse 4, but many who heard the, the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So if you'll remember earlier in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon at Pentecost, and it says 3,000 people come to know Christ. Well, now that, that number, through more preaching and proclaiming, now it's 5,000. Jump to verse 5. The next day, after spending a night in jail, the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. This is a big deal because it's Jerusalem. This is, this is the center of, this would be like Washington, D.C. It's where all the action happens, Jerusalem. Annas, if you have a Bible and you're, you're an underliner, you might underline this. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas. It's important. John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them on what, by what power and what name did you do this? What are they asking them? It's about what happened in Acts chapter 3 when they healed the crippled man and he became well and he could walk and everybody was amazed by it. And they're like, wait a second. Thought we got rid of Jesus and now his followers are doing the similar kind of miracle. So how did you do it? They didn't deny it. Notice in the verse, they didn't deny that it happened. They just want to know how did he do it? By what name? And then verse 8, I love Peter's response. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers and elders and the, and the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and everybody in Jerusalem, basically he's saying everybody in the world should know this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and then he quotes Psalm 118, I think, or maybe it's 108. Forgive me if I got it wrong. But anyway, I think it's 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, you tried to get rid of this guy, Jesus, but guess what? He's become the very foundation of this church, and everything is built upon him. He called himself that, right? He is the rock, right? Peter called him the rock. He affirmed it, that he is that. And then he quotes what, now Peter quotes what Jesus had said in uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. Remember when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter echoes it in verse 12. Look what he says. Salvation is found in no one else. For there was no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father, he says. And then verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note. What did they take note of? That these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing before them, there was nothing they could say. In other words, they couldn't refute the fact that the healing happened. He's right there. Everybody sees it. Verse 15, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then, and then they conferred together. So they had a little recess from their big trial. In verse 16, they say to each other, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone in Jerusalem Everyone in Jerusalem. How many people? Every person. Everyone in Jerusalem knows what just happened. What an outstanding miracle or a notable sign. I don't know what your version says. And we cannot deny it. Interesting. They realize they cannot deny the power of Jesus and the New Testament church. Verse 17. But to stop this power. <laughs> Good luck. 
but that's what they think. But to stop this power from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So that's their big plan. They're just going to tell them to stop talking about it. Verse 18, then they call them back in together. So they had recess from the court trial. They bring them back up in front and they called them and they commanded them their big plan to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, then Peter and John replied, which is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. But for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and about what we've heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was 40 years old. It's just simply saying that this guy was crippled his whole life and now he's healed. So it puts an exclamation point on the miraculous nature of what had just happened. So this Sadducee group, these teachers of the law, they're very greatly disturbed by the miracle. The miracle that had happened because, as I've already referenced, they were greatly disturbed about Jesus' miracles. And they spent years trying to get rid of Jesus, and they finally get rid of Jesus, and now the miracles aren't stopping. Now they're continuing through his disciples. So they arrest them. They put them in jail overnight. Um, they have this big trial the next day. These two simple fishermen stand trial before the highest rulers in Judaism. I mean, these are, it doesn't get, it's like the Supreme Court, right? Now try to imagine how intense this moment would be. Uh, verse 6, I, I told you to underline it in your Bible or, or, or take a note of it. Verse 6, who's, who's there? Who are the high priests? Annas and Caiaphas. If those names sound familiar, Matthew chapter 26 John chapter 18 names those two high priests. Who were they? They were the exact same high priests who falsely lied and accused Jesus of treason against Rome, and they had him brutally beaten and crucified. Same high priests. Can you imagine that? Peter knows that. John knows that. They're looking eye to eye with the very same people that had just executed Jesus. They're on trial. Which, what would you be thinking? I'd be thinking, wait a second, they just killed Jesus. They could kill me. That's what I would be thinking. And I'd be a little bit scared. These leaders are putting, uh, that they're looking at are those same group of people, knowing what they had already done. So if there was ever a time to back down, if there was ever a time to hold your tongue, if there was ever a time to not talk about Jesus, this might be the moment. Because they know how serious the threat is. Well, what would you do? What would I do? I mean, I hope that I would do what Peter and John did, right? That's what we would all hope, but what would they do? What do they ask? They, they ask they're asked a question, verse 8. They say, tell us what authority, by which authority do you do this? And again, remember, they don't deny the miracle. They just want to know how did you do it? By whose name did you do it? And I love what they say. When they're called to, to explain how this man was healed, um, it was by the, the name of Jesus, because there's power in his name, right, church? There's power in the name of Jesus, and they did it in his name. New Testament expert Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says, here the apostles stand before the chief council of all of Judaism, and they make it clear that not only is their authority to heal 
beyond that council or above that council. They're saying, our authority is way above you guys. Well, that couldn't have felt good to them. Then they go on to say, and by the way, <clears throat> this same Jesus that we're talking about, you killed him. And, and they're, they're pla he places blame upon them. Look at verse 13, if you have your Bible. It says that the authorities and the religious leaders were astonished. What were they astonished about? I love this. They were astonished at the courage. The courage, because these two guys are standing face to face with the same people that just executed Jesus, and they noticed how courageous they were. They weren't scared. I mean, they just knew what they had done to Jesus. The religious leaders knew it. Peter and John knew it. And here they stand face to face. They could, in all likelihood, everybody's probably thinking, they're also going to get crucified. They're also going to get murdered. They're also going to be brutally beaten, just like Jesus was. And they stand there, not with fear, but with courage. I love that part of verse 13. With courage. And then it says that they took note that they were unschooled ordinary men. If I understand the original language in Greek, unschooled simply means, uh, uh, the literal uh, word is without letters. Simply meaning that they didn't have formal education. They didn't have a degree. They didn't have something after their name, so to speak. They didn't have formal education. And then I love verse 13. Look at it again. I think it's on the screen. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, just ordinary people like you and me, they were astonished. What were they astonished about? And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Man, I want to be courageous like that. I want to be like Peter and John. I want to stand together with my children, my grandchildren, with a church community, with friends in a generation that wants to say, oh, Jesus, sure, we, yeah, he, he actually existed. He was even a good teacher. Oh, but he's not the son of God. He's not the savior of the world. I want to stand in a generation that says, yes, he was. He was exactly who he said he was. He's the savior of the world, the savior of all mankind full of love and compassion. Look back at verse 13 again. What do you think it was that the religious leaders, it says that they took note that these guys had been with Jesus. It's the only time I can ever find in the entire Bible that that's ever said about anybody. Isn't that cool? That these guys were with Jesus in such a way that when people saw them, they saw Jesus. Wow, wouldn't that be awesome? If we loved Jesus so much, spent so much time in his word and worshiping him and knowing him and walking with him, that when people saw us, they saw Jesus. That's the only verse I know of in the whole Bible that says they rubbed off on him so well that when they saw them, they took note that, hey, they've been with Jesus. Was it their passion? Was it their love? Was it their authority? Was it their humility? What was it? Their authenticity? I don't know what it was. But there was something about the way they lived with their Savior that so affected their lives that when people saw them, they saw Jesus. I love that. Well, these two fishermen, these two disciples, these two followers of Jesus so closely resemble Jesus that people see it. And then... Uh, what happens next? Look at verse 14. Since the authorities and the religious leaders could not deny that this miracle had taken place because the crippled man standing right before them, they take a recess. They don't know what to do. They're like, we got to talk about this. And they send them out. So they have a little meeting and they come up with a strategy in their little meeting. I already referenced it, right? What's their strategy? Uh, because they realize lots of people are flocking to, to, 
to the fo- just like people were following Jesus and they killed Jesus, got rid of him. Now people are following the teachings of Peter and John and the apostles. 3,000 people, now 5,000 people. The church is growing exponentially, plus all of the other people who were already followers of Jesus. We don't know the number of the New Testament church at this time, but it's growing rapidly. So many people are following. So they say, well, in order to, to get this to stop, here's our plan. We're going to just tell them to stop talking about Jesus. That's their big plan. So they call them back in, and they say, stop it. Stop talking about Jesus. Just don't do it anymore. Well, then what happens next in these verses is is awesome. I'll never forget where I was the first time I read these verses in the way that I read them that day. I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore in Manhattan Christian College. I was in our old uh, chapel building. My wife, Marcy, knows the building. It was an old building. I can remember the smell, you know, in an old building and old church pews. And I was sitting on the stage all by myself. Nobody else was in the room. I was having like a, just a time of reading my Bible, just me praying, journaling. And I read these words from Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Then they called them in together again, commanded them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. But... Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in your eyes to obey you rather than God. But for us, we can't help speak about Jesus. I can't stop. That's what he's saying. I can't stop. And I prayed that day. God made that always be true of me. Any family I ever have in the future, any kids, grandkids I ever have, may that be true of us, that we would never be able to stop talking about Jesus no matter what. I want to be like Peter and John. I want to be so well connected to the message of Jesus, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, that I cannot help but tell other people about Jesus. Well, despite (laughs) the religious leader's grand plan of just telling them, stop, knock it off. It didn't work, right? Uh, In fact, it says that the religious religious leaders let them go. Now, that's amazing. Think about this. What did the religious leaders do to Jesus just a few weeks, months, when, however, whatever the time was earlier? Well, they killed him. We know what history says. They killed Jesus. They thought they had got rid of Jesus. Well, now it's continuing, but this time they let him go because they begin to realize, they think, this is an unstoppable, unstoppable move. In fact, the passage says that they couldn't deny it because the man was standing before you and all of the people were praising God. So they didn't know what to do, so they let him go. That message of the resurrection is powerful. It's powerful, but it's also powerful because of the message that Jesus gave. And he gave it all throughout the Bible. I'm not going to read these passages. I'll just reference them. Um, You may know the story, Luke chapter 14. It's a parable of the great banquet. What was this message of Jesus that spread, that the apostles are now spreading? What is this gospel? What is this good news that they were spreading and were supposed to spread? Well, what is it? Well, first of all, in this passage in Luke 14, you can read it later, but I'll just summarize it. This is that story of the great banquet. Jesus tells a story, and he says that there was a man. He was having a great party. He sends out invitations. And people say, yeah, I'd love to come to your party. Well, then on the day of the party... He says, hey, the food's ready. Come over. What do they do? The people that were originally invited and originally said yes now say no. And that's kind of like these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, these people who had been following but, but won't accept the kingdom of God, won't accept Jesus. So Jesus tells the story, and it says that the master of the banquet gets angry about that. And so he says, and let's invite some other people. And people 
People that would never expect to be invited. Who are they? Crippled, blind, lame, the poor. And they're all invited. And the servants go out and they grab them and they bring them. And then they report back to the master and say, Master, guess what? We, we did what you said, but there's still room. Why is there still room? Because it's the kingdom of God he's talking about. It's not actually about a banquet. It's about heaven. It's about the kingdom of God. And there's always room for more. And he says, hey, there's still room. And so what's he do? He says, okay, we'll go as far out into to the country lanes, into the hillsides, and go get more people. In fact, I love how he says it. He says, go out right now with great urgency. And then there's this phrase, if I understand the original language, he says, make them come. Which literally is the expression of don't take no for an answer. Now that, just think about that in our evangelism. And as we spread the message, don't take no for an answer. That's literally, if I understand what that phrase means, don't take no for an answer. Go out quickly into the country lanes. And then he closes the parable with the point, And he says, because I want my house to be full. Pastor Chris has talked about this before. I want my house to be full. God wants heaven to be full. He tells another story, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 15. It's the parable of the vineyard workers. Same analogy, different story, or same point, different story, different analogy. He says there's a vineyard worker, a vineyard owner who's God, right? And he wants people to come into his vineyard. What's the vineyard? It's heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And so he goes out at 6 in the morning. The workday was 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. And he hires people to come into his vineyard. So those people come and they start to work. And then the owner of the vineyard, the parable says, goes back out at 9 a.m. And it says that he's found others still standing around. He says, hey, you also come work in my vineyard. And they do, and they go work in the vineyard. He comes out back at noon at 12 o'clock, and he says, hey, there's others standing. Hey, you also come work in my vineyard. What's the point here so far? That heaven is an invitation to anybody, no matter if you follow God for a long time or you just got it, figured it out, or in the mid-stage of your life, it doesn't matter where you are. Everyone's invited all the time, no matter what you've done. The master goes back out at 3 p.m. The owner, I should say, the owner goes back out at 3 p.m. and he says, he sees other people standing around. The text says, and doing nothing. So he says, you also come work in my vineyard. And they say, yes. Okay, now, the workday is over at 6 o'clock. He goes out at 5 o'clock, one hour left, and he finds other people standing there. So this is like saying, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've lived your life, uh, everybody's welcome into the kingdom no matter what. One hour left, and he finds others. He says, you also come work in the vineyard, and they come. Imagine their surprise when they thought, man, I thought the workday was over, and I can still come? Amazing. All right, that's the first half of the parable. There's a second half of the parable in verse 8, if you read it later, and he basically goes on to say that now it's time to pay them. He says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to make a point. I'm going to do so. I'm going to flip it around backwards. The people that were hired last and only worked one hour, I'm going to pay them first because they would have all expected to make what's called a denarius, a one day's wage. So these guys that worked an hour, they would have expected what? One twelfth of a denarius because they only worked one hour. And guess what do they get? They get all of heaven, all of the kingdom of God. They get the whole denarius. And that goes on for all of the group of the part-time workers. And of course, we have to ask the question, why did Jesus tell this story? What's the point of Jesus' story? What is he after here? He's after about heaven. He's teaching about heaven and who gets to go there. And here's the point. Anybody can go to heaven if you will accept the master's invitation. And he's saying everyone's invited, no matter if you've walked with God a long time or you haven't walked with him at all, even today, even today, right now, you could become a follower of Jesus. You could come in to the kingdom of God. Throughout the Bible, we see this. 
in the Old Testament, God goes back to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, and he invites them again. And if they'd only repent, I would bless you. If you would only repent. In other words, he's saying, if you would just accept my invitation, accept my way, you are accepted, you're loved, you're redeemed. We get introduced to a, a guy in the last chapters of the book of John after Jesus is crucified. And he's a guy that's on this religious council. He's a part of this Sanhedrin, the 72. His name we see in John chapter 19, verse 38. This is what it says. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Wait a second. This guy is a part of the Sanhedrin, this very same group that sentenced Jesus to death and in all likelihood could have been a part of the teachers of the law that's in Acts chapter 4. But this guy began to believe in Jesus. But, but he had to do it secretly because all of his companions on the council, they didn't believe in Jesus, except one other guy. His name was Nicodemus, right? He and Nicodemus, and they come and they take the body of Jesus and they prepare it for a customary uh, Jewish burial. I thought about that verse. I thought, could that be true of you and me? Connect church. We're disciples of Jesus, but secretly. Man, I hope that's never said of us. I hope that's not said of us. I hope it's the opposite is true. I, I don't want to be remembered one day. Blake was a disciple of Jesus, eh, but kind of secretly because he was afraid what people would think. I would rather Acts chapter 4, verse 20 be said of me, that Blake was a disciple and he could not help speak about what he had seen and heard. He couldn't help talk about Jesus. And this is the calling of every one of us as a follower of Jesus, is to tell others about Jesus. You know, sometimes our children, our little people, are way better at this than us, right? They just have a boldness. They don't know they're not supposed to talk about certain things. You know what I'm talking about? They just say stuff. When our daughter, Emmy, who, the redhead up here, most of you all know is our daughter, leading worship, um, married to Tyler. When she was in fourth grade, she asked us one night, reading stories and stuff, she said, well, what happens to people if they don't follow Jesus like we do? Well, Marcy and I sat down and we gently but truthfully told her in the Bible and showed her in the Bible, if you live a life apart from Jesus, and you don't want Jesus in your life, then you'll live an eternity apart from Jesus in a place called hell. And you could just see the countenance on her face. The, it just registered. And she's like, well, we have to tell people. It was like the light bulb went on. Like, people have to know. And we were like, yes, you're right. You should tell people. And so our little evangelist fourth grade daughter decides that she's going to write a letter to everybody in Highlands Ranch and tell them. And we're like, you should do it. You go, girl. You write that letter. Well, then we began to realize everybody in Highlands Ranch might be hard. So for our first run, we decided to get, do a couple dozen letters, you know, make it easy. So she got the phone book out, and she wrote addresses down on envelopes, okay? If you don't know what a phone book is, we can talk after the service what a phone book is. <laughs> but she writes these addresses down. She addresses the, she types the letters, addresses them. We pray over the letters. We go to the mailbox. We pray over the letters. We send the letters out. Here's what she wrote that day. I'm a nine-year-old girl, I live in Highlands Ranch, and I want to encourage you to invite the Lord Jesus into your heart and become a Christian. Accepting Jesus Christ into your heart is a great thing to do. Jesus Christ is the only true and living God. 
There's only one God in the whole entire world. If you'd like to invite the Lord into your heart, all you have to do is say this, Lord, please come into my heart. Or you can pray like this, Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I would now like to ask you into my heart. I am now accepting you, my Savior, into my heart. Please forgive me of my sins. I know I have sinned against you. Help me be more like you and follow you all the days that I live. In your holy and precious name, amen. And then she concludes her letter. The only person on earth that you should invite into your heart is the Lord Jesus. If you'd like to buy a Bible, you can get one at the Christian bookstore. Here's a little Bible verse for you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, remember him, and he will make your path smooth and straight. And then she says, always remember the Lord is great and powerful and strong too. If you ever have any questions about how to believe in the Lord, you can email me. She puts her email. Your friend, Emmy. When I reread that letter again this week, uh, I just reminded me of Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when Peter and John say, I can't help but talk. When I thought of her, when I thought of all of us, when we think of people facing a Christless eternity, that should be our immediate reaction is we have to tell them. People have to know. We have to tell them. Sorry. I, uh, it was awesome. Anyway, it was an awesome time. We have focused this little talk so far on Peter and John and the motivation and the boldness and that reaction to, we can't help but talk, right? We can't help tell other people about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. But I just want to say for one second, well, what is this gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus? Well, I'll just give it to you in a real nutshell so that this might be an example of how you could give it to somebody else in a nutshell. Okay, so if somebody says, well, what's the gospel? You simply say something like this. It doesn't have to be my words, but something like this. Hey, did you know that you are the creation of an almighty and personal God? He made you. He knows everything about your life. And he's given you a soul. And that soul is going to live beyond the grave. And you'll either go to a life with God or apart from God based on the decisions you made in this life about Jesus. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it simply says this. Here's the gospel. A penalty of death has to be paid for sin. Somebody has to die for sin. So here's the hard reality. You could die for your sin and be eternally separated. But the gospel is that Jesus came and he said he would die in your place. And he would take your sins and put it up on his shoulder so that when he died, you don't have to. That's the gospel. Did you know that? Have you ever accepted that? Have you ever heard that story before? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, if you're here today, you've never prayed that prayer. You've never realized that that's what it means to be a Christian, to let Jesus pay the penalty of death on my behalf, that's it. That's as, that's as simple as the gospel is. Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. And all you have to do is ask him. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you got to call. You got to ask. So would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, as our heads are bowed, 
and our eyes are closed, we hear what the scripture said, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as your head bowed and your eyes closed, if, if you don't know for sure that you're going to go to heaven, you wonder, but you want to know. You don't want to go home tonight and lay in bed and wonder. While your head's bowed and your eyes closed, you can just pray these words as your own. Say something like this to God. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. God, please live in my life by your Holy Spirit and make me a follower. So God, I thank you for any person who's prayed that as a first time or as a recommitment. Thank you that you hear that prayer and that you save people based upon our confession of faith, our trust in you. And God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the life of Peter and John, that they were bold, that they could not help but speak about you. May that be true of us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.